Muchas gracias, Nestler, por ese testimonio. Thank you for that testimony this morning. Uh, how are you guys doing? Doing good? Can you look at the person next to you, give them a smile, say thank you for coming to West Cabarrus Church. We want to just uh, thank you all for being here. If you're here for the first time, thank you for deciding to come to worship with us. If you're watching online, we want to thank you. I'm Pastor David. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's a privilege to be able to open God's Word and to listen to God's Word in a very special way this morning. Thank you, Ryan, for the opportunity to, to, to open God's Word. We are uh, going to continue in our series um, on worship, and uh, I think we heard a definition last week of what worship is to us, and uh, worship is a response to God for who He is and what He has done for us. And so as you are sitting there this morning, may those words just, just run through your mind as we take this passage in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19 through verse 26. But before we read, I wanted to share an interesting story that I read in Ernest Gordon's book, Miracle on the River Kauai. He spoke about a group of uh, Scottish soldiers forced by their Japanese captors during the war to labor on a jungle railroad. These Scottish soldiers had degenerated to barbarous behaviors, but one afternoon something happened. A shovel was missing. The officer in charge became, became enraged, and he demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. When nobody in the squadron budged, the officer got his gun and threatened to kill them all on the spot. It was obvious that the officer meant what he had said. Then finally, one man stepped forward. The officer put away his gun, picked up the shovel, and beat the man to death. When it was over, the survivors picked up the bloody corpse and carried it with them to the second tool check. This time, no shovel was missing. Indeed, there had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. The word spread like wildfire through the whole camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save others. This incident had a profound effect. The men began to treat each other like brothers. When the victorious allies swept in, the survivors, who practically looked like human skeletons, lined up in front of their captors, and instead of attacking them, they insisted, no more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness. Sacrificial love has transforming power. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this morning, this story is a picture of what the impact of the gospel produces, but also what we believe the gospel process looks like in a life. You see, in the kingdom of God, love is supreme. And this is, this is how it works. God loves us. We see this clearly in the fact that Christ, just like the soldier in the story, did not have to do what he did for us, dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. We repent of our sin and receive his gift of grace. Then we respond to his love by loving him in return. This is why we worship. This is why we pray. This is why we sing. This is why we study the scripture. We come to church all as a way to love God. And this love of God then stirs us to love the people around us. Led by the Spirit of God that is in us, we begin to do sacrificial things God asks of us in attempt to love others. 
True love is all-consuming. Now, we are not only called to love God with our hearts, as we learned uh, in a very special way last week, but also Scripture tells us that we have to love God with all of our souls. It's interesting, the word soul in the Hebrew is nefesh, which refers to wholeness of being. The call of God in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 is to love God with all of our being. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 tells us that God formed the man from the dust, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living soul. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us in chapter 3, We find these words, also, he has put eternity, he has put a soul into man's heart. In a devotion to God, our soul is responsible for the highest spiritual exercises. It is the seat of our emotional activity, but most importantly, it's how we personally relate to God. God relates to me, and I relate to God through my soul. It seems Moses is stating the fact here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that loving God starts within us. Our souls must be resurrected or created anew by the power of God's love. And from there, the wholeness of who we are should be to display this same love. We should love God with all of our passions, hungers, perceptions, and how we use our talents And what we do with our whole being should display the truth that we love God. But ladies and gentlemen, this morning the question is, do we love God in this way? Do you love God in this way? Our eternal souls truly thirst for a personal relationship with God, and nothing material or emotional can fill this need. Not not even a new car or a new house or a new job or even a significant other or a spectacular vacation. None of those things truly will fill the need that we have for God. So if we're real with ourselves this morning, we can can tell that that, that it does exist. There there does exist an emptiness or, or a craving for more. More than what I might be using to alleviate this reality. So my affections, my emotions, sadly do not show that I truly love God. They show that I love myself and only myself. And this culture teaches me to live in that manner. I love what Pastor Tim Keller said. He said, what makes people into what they are is the order of their loves. What what they love most. More, less, And least, this is more fundamental to who you are than even the beliefs to which you mentally subscribe. Your love show what you actually believe in, not what you say. So our soul should be the ultimate expression of the personal impact of a life of faith and trust in God. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. He says, blessed Super happy, super content, super satisfied is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit, whose soul, there is no deceit. We need the breath of God to provide us the forgiveness our souls are yearning for and to activate in us the love that is needed to worship Him. So we 
worship as a response to God for who he is and what he has done for us. If you have your Bibles, let's open to Romans chapter 3. Let's read beginning in verse 19 all the way through verse 26. Follow along if you can this morning. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you as a group of people not knowing anything. We realize that you are the God that knows it all. And Lord, we pray that you teach us this morning, that through the power of your word this morning, those who might not have a personal relationship with you, may they come to find what their souls are yearning for. And those of us who have already come to faith in Christ, that today, oh God, we can leave this place understanding that we're called to love you with all of our souls. Speak to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The book of Romans is a very special book because it lays out with clarity this plan of salvation in the mind of God. But here in chapter 3, we find that Paul is leading us not to ask the question, what I think about God, but the question that he is desiring us to ask is, what does God think about me? <laughs> you see, we see in this chapter that Paul takes all of humanity and places them before the courtroom of the universe. God, as the true judge, who cannot overlook sin, and listen, this should bring thankfulness to our hearts because it shows that the true God is a God of equity. Paul says God is a judge who does not lower his standards. And then Paul presents all of us before him as the accused. Paul shows and Paul uh, presents himself as the prosecuting attorney who has chipped away at any of the excuses of our failures and loving God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, strength, and the failure of loving our neighbors as ourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning, God does not require a passing grade. What God requires is a perfect grade. So that's why Paul says in chapter 1, I want to talk, first of all, to the pagans, to those who sadly, before our eyes maybe, we look at them as the worst of sinners. And Paul says, the pagans are guilty before God. But then he goes to chapter 2 and he indicates that even the moralists, 
those who believe they have done nothing wrong, especially when they're compared to pagans, are also guilty. And then he goes in and talks about the religious people. He introduces these religious people who believe that through striving for perfection, those who in themselves believe that they have done good enough because of their religious inclinations, or in a sense, their law-keeping, are also guilty before God. They're guilty as charged. What this particular passage speaks on or highlights is the reality that we have all committed cosmic uh, treason. We have all committed treason before God. Therefore, we must understand that this is why it is only by recognizing that God's righteousness has been unveiled and because of this one and only truth, He is worthy of my all-consuming love towards Him. God is the only one worthy of this type of worship. Have you come to understand this? Do you live this truth out? Now the question maybe today is, why? Why is God the only one worthy of my all-consuming love or my true worship? Well, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us those answers in this passage that we just read. We see that Paul answers clearly why God is the only one worthy of my worship. He begins in verse 19 through verse 21, and he says, first of all, because God is the only one that tells me the truth about my soul. God is the only one that tells me the truth about our souls. And I love in verse 19 because Paul says, now we know, <laughs> which, which reveals that there was something that we didn't understand. There was something that we did not know in, in Paul's life. And he says, now we understand, now we comprehend, we cannot keep the law of God. What it says here in, the, in these verses is that absolutely no one can save themselves. The law, law of God takes away all arguments and excuses that we are worthy of God's approval through our own merits. The law of God shows us that we are not worthy. The law is a mirror that shows me my reality and my immediate need. Jesus Christ in Mark 12 was asked a question by a scribe. He said, uh, teacher, which is the most important of all commandments? And Jesus answers using Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, as the base of his response. And he says in verse 29, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. Love God with all that you are and love others in that same way. Again, in this passage in Mark 12, we find that the question Jesus here is asking this man was not what he thought about God. Jesus already knew what he thought about God, especially by seeing his rigorous religious structure. Everyone knew. What Jesus was asking was, have you not thought about what God thinks about you? Ladies and gentlemen, this morning, this is the question that we have to ask ourselves continuously if we desire to worship God the way he deserves. You see, these religious men had decided to interpret Scripture on their own terms. They had established that obedience to the law was more important than obedience to God. And it's interesting in the story that the same scribe, after hearing the response to Jesus, 
said these words, and to love him with all we are and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more, he said, than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He, in that moment, realized, if I'm going to love God and love others in this way, it's impossible through my own merit. Jesus, through this passage, defines the essence of the law, which is to love God with an all-consuming love and love others with that same consuming love. The scribe helps us capture the truth of his and my own reality. There is nothing we can do to be accepted because we are guilty of the law. In no way in ourselves can we stand before God in a perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. That's why in verse 23, in, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says these words, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All. Now it's interesting, when we go back to Mark chapter 12, Jesus listens to the response of the, of the scribe, and he in verse 34 says these words, You are not far from the kingdom of God. This passage in Mark 12 captures the words of what God is expecting of us and what God truly is after He is after an obedience, not of rituals or traditions, but one of total surrender and willingness. And willingness to live a life that loves him. Now, the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 states the truth that the whole world is held accountable to God. God is perfect. We are not And Paul says the whole world is rendering accountability before a perfect God, and we fall short. But then he says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Listen, this verse is outstanding because even though we find ourselves guilty before God, Paul says, but God has displayed his righteousness. Now, the the the, the preposition of there in that passage in verse 21 is not a word but a construction in the Greek. We have to look at the context that, that, to help us to know what this word means. This of here of the righteousness of God is talking about a common meaning in the Greek that speaks of source, something that comes from God. Because of what Paul says in verse 22, he explains with clarity that This righteousness is something that can only be received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul here is not speaking of God's righteousness by which he himself is righteous. No, no, he's talking about a righteousness that is given only by grace. So the question this morning is, so whose righteousness is given to us? Whose righteousness is given to to the one who comes in willingness and surrender and submission to God, well, it's obvious. The righteousness of the man God, Jesus Christ, the the, the God-man that came and he lived above the law, the one who came to live out an all-consuming love towards the Father, obeying all of the law of God for us. The question might be, how did Jesus have a perfect righteousness? Well, he earned it. He obeyed completely the law of God. His all-consuming love not only led him to live God's law perfectly, but to also carry our sin upon himself on the cross and to rise 
from the dead for you and I. I love how one pastor puts it. On the cross, God treated Jesus as though he had lived your life so that God may treat you as though you had lived his. Ladies and gentlemen, throughout history, mankind has always tried to save themselves. For example, the pre-moderns, years back, they, they sought out to deal with spirits and gods. They were involved in witchcraft and occultism. And then we see the traditional cultures. They were focused more on serving their parents and their family. Their eyes were set on genealogies, believing that that was going to save them. And then we find postmoderns. They, they express, express themselves fulfilling their own deepest longings. This is what the culture tells us, that we can save ourselves. But this morning, God tells us the truth. We can't. We can't. But Paul continues here in this passage, and he gives us a second reason why God is the only one worthy of true worship, worthy of loving him with all of our souls. Paul says, God is deserving because he is the sacrifice for my soul. He is the sacrifice for our souls. And from verse 22 through 25, we see that the Apostle Paul highlights three different concepts. One is justification, and we'll talk a little bit about that in our third point. But then he uses two words, redemption and propitiation. And that's where I want to focus on here in this second point. In verse 24, Paul says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption here in the Greek is apolitrosis. It's a ransom payment. Originally, it spoke about the release of prisoners of war on payment of a price. It was known as a ransom This practice then was applied to freeing slaves by paying a price. Paul talks about this uh, redemption in Christ, in God. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, when he said, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God. Worship God in your body and in your spirit and your soul, which are God's. When I think about ransom and paying a price, I remember 1997, we were recently married with Fernanda, and uh, we were in California, so I had the opportunity of preaching in the city of San Francisco. Go Niners today, right? And I was there about to stand on the platform when all of a sudden there was this gentleman that walked in. Obviously, he was under the influence of something, and he sat in the back of the room. And so when I got up to the platform, like I always do in any place that people don't know who I am, I introduce my wife, and especially when my wife is present. And so I introduced my wife, and she stood up, and everyone applauded, and she greeted. Uh, imagine many were saying, how is this beautiful woman married this ugly guy, right? And then I began to preach. She sat down, and I began to preach. And I was, I was talking about the Jewish customs of what the groom had to do to finally marry that woman that he loved so much. And so the groom had to go and visit her father. They had to sit down, and the father presented a price that he had to pay. It was called a dowry or a, a nuptial payment. And so there he had to, to, to make a payment. Now, as I was explaining this, I said, I'm thankful that I didn't have to do that. Because if I had to pay a payment, I'd probably have to pay a million dollars when all of a sudden this man 
that was under the influence of some substance, got up, pointed to my wife, and said, I'm willing to pay two million. (laughs) This is what God did for your soul. He paid a price that nobody could pay. And Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as he lays out the principles of the Shema, he continues in verse 20 through 25. And it's interesting that he says, if your sons ask you, what is the meaning of our need of worshiping God with all of our being? If they ask you that, what you have to respond are these words. He says, you should tell them that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and he brought us out from there to bring us in and to give us what he promised. God, God redeemed his people with his mighty hand. He paid a high cost and price for us. God brought redemption to Israel with his mighty hand. And he continues to redeem those who come to him in total surrender and, and, and humility. He redeems them in the same way. Those who believe in his son Paul says they're redeemed. And in verse 22, in Romans 3, we see that there is without exception. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you're involved in. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what language you speak. What matters is that you come and allow God to redeem your soul. Now, Paul continues in verse 25, and he says, Whom God put forward, this, this phrase in the Greek, speaks of setting forth in advance to achieve a a particular purpose. That's why when we read Revelation 13, 8, the, the words in this word just come alive because we understand God always had this planned. We find in that verse in Revelation that the lamb who was slain even before the foundation of the world, this is deep, to comprehend and understand that, that even before anything was created, God crucified his son. Us. Now, Paul says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation in the Greek is ilasterion. And I know Pastor Ryan has used this word many times in some of his messages in the past. But it's interesting that the word means a sacrifice for atonement. It's the same word that we find in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, that describes the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple. This was the place where the blood of the animal was sacrificed and spilled over for atonement in favor of the people of God. Expiation or sacrifice for atonement are the words sometimes used. But in Scripture, propitiation is something that makes God look upon a person or a group of people with favor and delight This is not speaking of a neutral position. It speaks of a position of once being a child of wrath to becoming a child of God. I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago, and and he said, David, I'm struggling with something because I tried to pray in thankfulness as I think about what Christ did for me on the cross, and it's hard. Because when I begin to think everything he had to go through, the cruelty of the way that he suffered and died, it's hard. And so I began to tell him, yeah, it's hard, but you got to give thanks with everything that you have. And I began to tell him about an altar that was in the outer courts of the tabernacle and the temple called the brazen altar. 
known as well as the, the bronze altar. It was a four-sided box, seven and a half by seven and a half by four and a half. You see it here up on the screen. Covered with bronze. And it was there where people would bring their sacrifice to atone for their sin. It's interesting that this altar was located in a public place for all to see. The fire was started at the beginning of the day, and people would present their sacrifices in the morning or in the evening every single day. They would never turn, out, turn off that fire until the end of the day. You see, this box in each corner had horns that represented strength, salvation, security. This altar was placed or located in a public place for all to see. Why? Well, because it was a place of substitutionary sacrifice. It was a place of death. People would position their hands over the animal as they were presenting this substitute, and then the animal would publicly be sacrificed. These animals foreshowed Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, who would atone for the sin of all. Jesus died publicly, and he suffered horribly because he had to. In the same way the animals were sacrificed publicly, he, through his sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice, also had to do the same. As we think about what Jesus had to confront, we find that he withstood six different trials, three Jewish trials, three Roman trials, where false testimony was presented, which led them to find him guilty of nothing, because he did nothing wrong. But this is not all. Jesus faced excruciating physical suffering. And not only the Gospels explain this, but there are articles that have been published, like an article uh, published in 1986 titled The Physical Death of Jesus Christ in the American Medical Association. Talk about how much he endured. Jesus Christ endured whipping so severe that it tore the flesh from his body. He was beaten so drastically that his face was torn. His beard was ripped. A crown of thorns two or three inches long cut deeply into his skull. The leather whip used to flog him had tiny iron balls and sharp bones. These balls caused internal injury, injuries while the, the sharp bones ripped open his flesh. Roman physicians confirmed that only after three lashes they could see the, the criminal's rib cage. And I imagine that Jesus received more than three. His muscles, his veins, his bowels were exposed, causing major blood loss. Most men do not survive this kind of torture. After Jesus was severely flogged, he was forced to carry his own cross more than 100 pounds while people mocked and spat on him. Crucifixion was a process meant to instill excruciating pain, creating a slow and agonizing death. Nails as long as eight inches were driven into Jesus' wrists and feet. The Roman soldiers knew the tendon in the wrist would tear and break, forcing Jesus to use his back muscles to support himself just to breathe. Only imagine the struggle, the pain, but at the same time the courage that Jesus endured all of this for over three hours. And he did this publicly. I love what a pastor said. He said, it's not a matter of how Jesus died or whether Jesus died, but rather why he died. He died because of my sin. He died because of your sin. 
And Peter states in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the just dying for the unjust so that he may bring us to God. That's why he died. These facts, ladies and gentlemen, should move us to our knees. It should move us to a life of worship, a life where we are loving God with all of our soul because he did this for us. And you might be asking yourself, well, how should I respond? What should I do? Well, Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God the same way he sacrificed. Paul says, you should sacrifice as well. So be it my time, be it my talents, whatever God gives me, I give to him because he is the only one worthy of true worship and a love that demonstrates a love with all of my being. But Paul here gives us a third reason in this passage, verse 26. You see, God deserves our complete worship. God deserves our all-consuming love because he is the justifier of our souls. He is the justifier of our souls. What Paul states here in this verse 26 is, hey, those who are in Christ at one time were guilty, but now they have become acquitted. It says here in verse 26 that everything that God has done, it was to show his righteousness. The word show in the Greek talks about pointing out or indicating or displaying a proof. It's the same word that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 24, where Paul says these words, talking to the believers in Corinth. He says, give proof to these men that will visit you of our boasting of you. We see the heart of Paul wanting the believers in Corinth to live a life of worship, of praise to God. He says, some of my friends are going to go visit you. I've been talking to them about you much, how God has transformed your lives, how the gospel has truly just changed your direction. And what I want you to do is to show them, to put on a display so that the, those who visit and those who talk to you may, may be drawn to see the power of God. That's what Paul is saying. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning, God has called us to do the same. Many of us don't understand that a life of worship has to be displayed. There's not, it's not something I can hide or do when nobody's looking, especially when we have opportunities like we do every Sunday morning to come to this place. This place should be a, 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 a stage of worship to God. It should be a moment when we, we on our knees or, or in any position, just love God with everything that we have. Paul says, God planned all of this to point out that he is the only one with the power to forgive. God planned all this, showed all this, displayed all of this to allow us to understand that he is the only one that could make us accepted before his presence. It's interesting, here in the English language in this passage, you find two words. You find righteousness and justice. Now, in the English language, those two words uh, have different definitions. But Paul, here in this passage, doesn't use two, two words. He uses one word in the Greek. And this one word is a legal term that speaks about people who are seeking to restore a situation that is not right. Paul says, God is not only the one that is just, but he's also our justifier. 
He's the one that justifies our soul. This word here in the Greek is the same word that we find in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus begins to share a parable. He he takes and he says there was a Pharisee and there was a tax collector. Both of them went to the temple to pray. And Jesus begins to describe each of these men. He says the Pharisee, he was full of pride, of personal honor, and he he started to pray to God, and he said, God, thank you that you did not make me like this tax collector. <laughs> thank you that I don't extort people, I don't lie, I don't do the things that he does. He even called the poor man a, an adulterer. <laughs> and then he began to talk about himself. And he said, Lord, thank you that you've made me like you have because I pray to you, because I live a life that is pleasing to you. Uh, I, I fast twice a week. Oh, it's, it's everything that I do for you, Lord. But then Jesus describes the tax collector. As he begins to pray, he realizes that his iniquity, his sin, has created a barrier between him and God. And it says in the passage there in Luke 18 that that he could not even raise his eyes to heaven because he was overburdened with the reality that he did not deserve God's mercy. And so the only thing he knew what to do was to call out was to shout out, God, please give me your mercy. Please, God, through your grace, give me what I do not deserve. Have mercy upon me. And Jesus, finishing the parable, said, out of these two men, there was only one that went back home. In verse 14, he says, one of them went back home justified. Who was it? It wasn't the Pharisee. No, it was the tax collector. You see, one of the things that we understand through this passage is that we cannot come to God as we please. We have to come to God on His terms and His terms only. This is the gospel. You see, the gospel does away with self-validation. It does away with with self-acceptance. It does away with identity. I bring nothing to God, but in Christ, God gives me everything. Do you understand that? Have you come to experience this? God gives us everything. It's interesting what Marcus Sloan said. He said, forgiveness says, you may go. You have been let off of your penalty. But to be justified, God says, you may come. You're welcome to all my love and presence. This is incredible. God says, it doesn't matter where you are, it does not matter what you have done. What, it, what matters is that you come on my terms and you ask for the mercy I desire to give you today. Now, my sister, for about 10 years with her husband, tried to have a baby and they couldn't. They did many treatments, uh, tried everything possible, but they never could. They struggled. They had some months where they were doubting even their faith and why us and why this. And, and, but God worked in their hearts and finally they came to the understanding that God has His purposes. And so they began the, 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 the fostering training and they wanted to be, become parents that could adopt one day. So after their confirmation as foster parents, they received a call the next day and they said, there's a little boy four days old that we, we would love for you to take care of. You'll see Eddie on the screen. 
Eddie was four days old when he arrived. Uh, he's nine years old today. It's just a ball of fire, man. We're blessed to have him. But the day that they finally legally adopted Eddie, my brother-in-law sent us a picture of Eddie with a Chicago Cubs jersey. I have no idea why my brother-in-law likes the Chicago Cubs. I'm still asking, me that, I'm asking myself that question. But, well, he, he put together this jersey where in the back of that jersey was his last name, Melling. When they sent us that picture, our, we just started to cry. First of all, to see my sister so happy, to know that they were going to be able to bless this little boy. Eddie's parents at the time were in prison. As you think about the cycle of those families, you realize that Eddie would probably end up in the same place. But there was a couple that were filled with grace and mercy, opened their home, and they received this little boy. When I received that picture that day, I I went directly to my relationship with God. And I said, this is what God did to me. I came through his terms. I I went to him through his terms, and he received me. This This was what happens to anybody who comes to him. The Bible says that we are adopted through Christ, and we are part of God's family. The moment I come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, God gives me his last name. You might be asking, what is God's last name? Well, I believe God's last name is he or she belongs to me. He or she belongs to me. My question this morning for you is, have you received God's last name? The Bible is clear. It says the only way you can do that is through Christ. He paid the price for you. You see, God has told us the truth about our souls. God himself came. The second person of the Trinity came. He made himself man because he was the sacrifice for my soul. And then God is the justifier of our souls. That's why we worship him. We worship as a response to who he is and what he has done for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Lord, we're overwhelmed to think about all that you have done so that we may be right before your presence. Lord, you know every heart that is here seated in this place. You know everyone watching online. And you know who belongs to you and who doesn't. Lord, I pray that you may work in the hearts of those that need to come to you. If it's your desire this morning to come to to God through Christ, the only thing you need to do is to surrender and to have complete willingness that you also as the tax collector may just call out and say, God, have mercy upon me. The Bible says that God forgives your sin. The Bible says that God gives you new life and that he resurrects your soul to a new life. You begin to walk this life, this journey with him, being faithful 
loving him with all of your soul for all eternity. For those of us that have already made this decision, I pray that we can examine our own lives, that we can ask that question, what does God think of me? Maybe it's time to give up areas of your life that you have been hiding or keeping for yourself. God is telling you this morning, give it to me. That you too, me as well, that we could present ourselves as the tax collector and say, God, have mercy. (laughs) We need you. And that our lives may display and show this culture, this world, that there's nothing better than to know that our sins have been forgiven and that you desire to use our lives to make more and better disciples beginning in our neighborhoods and to the nations. Lord, I thank you for this time. We pray for West Cabarrus Church. Lord, we pray for our community. We pray for the nations. Allow us to make noise, worshiping you, make noise, loving you with all of our souls so that you can make an impact all around us. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name.